Welcome to Lung Cancer Concerted, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at islc.org in the newsroom. We are your hosts, Dr. Narjus Flores and Dr. Stephen Liu. Hi, this is Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. And this is Dr. Narjus Flores, Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at Dana-Farber and Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. In this special episode of Lung Cancer Concerted, we will discuss the seminal IPASS trial with his principal investigator, Dr. Tony Mock. IPASS was a randomized phase three trial that compared the EGFR TKI gefitinib to carboplatin plus plaquitaxel and show for the first time that in a selected population, targeted therapy was superior to chemotherapy. The initial results were published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2009 and helped usher the new era of precision oncology. While today we appreciate the importance of targeted therapy and biomarker testing, it's still a relatively recent development in oncology. Our understanding of lung cancer biology has advanced at an incredible pace, and our paradigms for the treatment of lung cancer have been radically altered by several major landmark trials. IPASS is one of those trials. To discuss this study, our guest today is Dr. Tony Mock, truly a pillar of thoracic oncology. Dr. Mock is the Lee Shufan Medical Foundation Endowed Professor and Chairman of the Department of Clinical Oncology at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. He co-founded the Lung Cancer Research Group, the Chinese Thoracic Oncology Research Group, the Asia Thoracic Oncology Research Group. He was instrumental in many of the studies that have defined our standards of care, including IPASS, Alex, Aura 3, Impress, Archer 1050, Profile 1014, Keynote 042. Uh, I could go on and on. Professor Mock remains one of the most active, productive, and influential leaders and mentors in lung cancer. He was the 2017 recipient of the IASLC Paul Bunn Scientific Award and is a former president of IASLC. Tony, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you so much for the kind invitation. It's a great pleasure uh, to be engaged in this podcast. And uh, I think we have so much to talk about, Steve. <laughs> thank you so much, Dr. Mock, for being here. I can tell you that when I was growing up, meaning when I was in fellowship, somebody asked me, who you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, I want to be like Dr. Mock. Uh, and I told that to my mentor. So um, as we move the conversation, IPASS began enrolling in March of 2006. Before we discuss the study itself, let's give our listeners the right context. Today, molecular testing and next gene sequencing are fairly routine in the assessment of lung cancer. But in the early 2000s, that was not the case. We have seen dramatic responses with EGFR TKIs like gefitinib and erlotinib, but it took some time to identify the specific biomarker. Dr. Mock, can you tell us a little bit about those early days of targeted therapy and biomarker discovery? Right. Thank you so much for the convert, and I'm sure you, you would do a lot better than what I can do. Now, let's starting from the story is actually uh, we have the molecule before with the biomarker. Now, we're tracing back. Trifitinib and ertinib was actually discovered based on targeting the EGFR. 
And then when they come into the phase one trial, uh, there's actually evidence of response, but the response rate was relatively low. Uh, and there is, you know, the response rate in the Caucasian population was only about 10% in the phase two study. And then in the Japanese population is about 20%. But then the patients who responded were dramatic in a way, if the tumor just melts away, the quarter life improved. So it was quite encouraging at that time. But the only selection biomarker was absent. So we start to look at the clinical one. So at that time, we start to know that if it's Asian, female, non-smoker, they tend to do better. But we were not able to say which and why they are doing better. So we looked into the uh, EGFR. The first target, of course, is the protein expression by IFC. So there seemed to be some correlation, and it was not a strong one. And then our good friend, uh, Dr. Capuso, who worked with Fred Hirsch from Denver, of course, who was a previous CEO of ISLC, looked into the fish uh, forcing inside to hypothesization, look at the copy number, and then that seemed to have also have a good correlation. And there was extensive work on using fish and IXC uh, retrospectively as a biomarker. And then the two curves were separated in the progression-free survival and the over-survival curve. So we were rolling into uh, that direction, but only in 2004, a smart guy uh, called Tom Lynch and from uh, MGH and also another group from Daniel Faber, led by Professor uh, Pasiani. And then they start to look into the potential of GF mutation. Now with Tom's story, it's actually quite interesting. Uh, he was actually chatting along uh, with his uh, genomic colleagues in the hallway. And then they make the decision say, why don't we just sequence the EGFR gene in the patient who get dramatic response? So out of the 11 sample he collected from his center and other part of the United States, long and behold, every single good responder turned out to have a EGFR mutation. At that time, they identified it as either a deletion uh, of um, base pair in the XO19 or a single point mutation in XO21. And so there come the first publication from the New England Journal of Medicine. But actually, in the same time, the Pasiyanis group had the similar observation and published in science. So that is actually what revolutionized the whole biomarker paradigm for us this day. It's such a remarkable story, Tony. I mean, this whole field of precision oncology, of lung cancer, really leading the way, it all started with with a study of, of less than a dozen patient samples. I mean, it really shows what you can do if you're really asking the right questions, right? Uh, absolutely. I think this is what science is about. Uh, you know, in a way that you observe something dramatic, you try to ask the question and you try to look for answer and you may not need a huge sample to find the answer. But of course, once you find that specific answer, you need a large sample to prove it. I think that had repeat the history itself over and over again. I mean, ALK, this is not today's topic, but we can talk about it. It's actually something similar. Mm, absolutely. Now, IPASS uh, stands for the ARESA Pan-Asia Study. And at mm. the time of its development, you know, like Narju said, we knew Jafitnib had some activity, uh, but it was pretty select. To use this in the frontline setting, we certainly had to enrich our study population. Now, today, that enrichment is the presence of a sensitizing EGFR mutation um, based on the work you described. 
for iPass, the selection criteria were different. This was more phenotypic, right? It was it was histology, which had to be adenocarcinoma or bronchoalveolar carcinoma. It was smoking history um, that was conducted in Asia. Tony, can you tell the listeners a little bit about the the selection strategy you used in iPass and, and how that's evolved? Uh, certainly, I can. But um, before I go into uh, that part of selection, maybe I can tell you the story a little bit step backwards. Sorry about the, this will be a long story. I know <laughs> I, this is breakfast time for me and dinner time for you. It may go on for a long time. But there's something quite interesting. Now, Jufitilib, uh, was actually conditionally approved by FDA because of dramatic response. It's based on a single arm data where a patient with dramatic response, although the response rate was low, but due to the fact that there are patient advocacy presented to the FDA, just saying that, hey, I really benefit from this drug. So there was a conditional approval, an early rapid approval for Gifitidib in the beginning. However, FDA had set the criteria that the pharmaceutical company has to do three randomized phase three studies uh, just to prove that it's work. The first study is called the ISO study, which is a late line situation when patients fail multiple line, they go on gefitilib versus placebo. Another one is a second line situation. It is gefitilib versus docetaxel unselected population. That's called the interest study. And also initial design of IPAR was first-line situation, unselected population, gefitilib versus standard platinum-based doublet, which at that time was taxocarbo. So those are the three randomized studies that the pharmaceutical company had promised to FDA as such that they can have their uh, condition approval. So long behold, ISO is the first, was the first study because it was the easiest to recruit. So the data come out first. So as you may expect, over-survival, unselected population, end of the line, gefitilib versus placebo. It turned out to be negative. Actually, there was slight separation of the curve. Uh, we don't we know now why, but at that time, we don't know why it was the case. But then there certainly, there was only a marginal benefit. It was a negative study. So as a result, the study uh, gefitilib has to be withdrawn from United States. So that is actually a very detrimental situation, uh, you know, for the whole approval process of Jefitilib. And I can still remember the emotion involved with the naked ISO study. The investigator was very upset. I mean, the pharmaceutical company was very upset, but then the whole community was actually very unhappy with the situation. Now, so the next question is that what to do in the first line? I mean, they still got the study ongoing at that time. I mean, the IPAS was barely started when the ISO came out. So as a result, you know, I was initially engaged uh, in uh, IPAS only as a uh, supporting in the steering committee. I was not the chair. Actually, uh, you know, Ron Latali from uh, UCLA was actually the lead uh, author for the protocol in the IPAS study. So they, due to withdrawal of the Jefitilib, they cannot conduct the first line study in the United States. So they have to move the study out from the United States and that involve only outside United States. And also they do not have the interest of actually uh, trying to establish their registration at Jefit uh, of Jefitilib and Europe at that time due to the negative study. So the focus become the Asia. And so I become the study PI as a result of that. And we also invite uh, Japan, uh, you know, the, uh, as a so-called uh, co-co uh, for a lead offer of the situation. 
Now, but I was end up with this protocol of unselected population and the endpoint as over survival. But that, that was 2005. We already know about the impact of the new mutation. So looking at the protocol, I say must be a negative study. If you do an unselected population and then endpoint over survival, the crossover is going to get rid of any potential benefit that you will see. Mm-hmm. So I just work with the pharmaceutical company. I just say that, no way, this will be negative. We do something about it. So that is where we come about the population selection. Now, ideally at that time, we could have used EGFM mutation, but you can imagine the the EGFM mutation was only reported in 2004. We would not have sufficient facility in Asia to actually to look into the EGFM mutation promptly in the first line situation. So instead of biomarker selection, I discussed with them just say, why don't we enrich the population uh, such that we can have the maximal number of EGFM mutation in the population. And then we look into the EGFM mutation retrospectively to look at the subgroup. So we plan all this. And also there's one other interesting aspect for the so-called the clinical trialists is that if we're just going to do a superior, superiority study, this population doesn't need to be that huge. And then as a result, if you don't have a big population, then the percentage of gene mutation may have a significant impact. For example, if you only get 30% of the patient with gene mutation out of a 500 population, and also out of the 500 population, you probably do not get the sample of all patients. So you end up with very small population uh, to, for a small uh, population of samples that you can assess for each of mutation. So therefore, I negotiate, which is actually a difficult negotiation because it costs a lot of money to change this to a non-inferiority study because the, their confidence was not too high. But then there's a good time for, for, for me to propose, why don't we make a non-inferiority study so that the population is bigger and then get a higher number of samples that we can process for each of mutation. So that's why that the original uh, design of IPAS study was changed from a superiority comparison study to a non-inferiority study with over uh, 1,200 patients. So with that, we were able to collect sufficient sample to retrospectively to look at EGFM mutation. So enrichment and sample size become the key feature uh, in the design of IPAS. So that is a story. So it's a long way to answer your question. Uh, my, my apology. Thank you, Dr. Mark, for that. That's more than a long story. That's history in lung cancer. And I don't think many of us, the newer generation, will have even joined if it wouldn't be for that. Along those lines, you told this story about the FDA withdrawal in the approval. Was there any hesitation from the pharmaceutical company and from the trialists, the investigators that work with you about running the study? Ah, that is a very good question. So um, FDA have withdrawn due to the negative ISO study. Now, normally we would have reacted that negatively. However, by that time, we already know about EGFM mutation. We look at ISO study, we already knew that actually uh, the design was a problem because of the, this unselected population. And also, by that time, they were able to do the multiple biomarker study looking at EGFR, uh, IHC, EGFR by fish, and EGFR by uh, molecular study, that we were able to see that 
the EGFR mutation in the ISO population is actually uh, very strongly positive. Then, so the biomarker is actually from the ISO already informed us there's nothing wrong with the drug and the, and the biomarker, but it's only the population selection was the problem. So we have no hesitation of using that drug, uh, you know, in the patient with EGFR mutation at that time. Um, but that led to also another second point is that, which is relatively historic. You probably know that every drug company will target FDA as the prime objective because that was the biggest market for any drug development. But now they were off the market. So if, if you look at the pharmaceutical point of view, when they don't have the biggest market, would they still want to develop the drug? Although knowing the science that it is related to the biomarker. So actually, it's my salute to even without biomarker, without, without the U.S. as their prime target market, they are still willing to invest in IPAS and then have this study done in Asia, targeted for registration in China and Japan as their prime target instead. So historically, this is the first time a drug company will knowingly that they will not have the U.S. market, but still try to do a large phase study to prove the drug work. And then using only Asian uh, as, a, as the market, which is Japan and China. So that also actually led to the, some interesting design in the study. In a way, when we first designed the study, we had to fulfill the criteria of uh, Japan and China. So you will see that they actually have the largest population and the number of patients, which was, uh, I, I remember correctly, about 300 from China, about 250 from Japan. Those are the number required for these two countries' registration. Wow. I, I Just until this moment, I never really thought about that, that they require that kind of investment, knowing that they weren't going to get the payoff of, of, an, of an FDA approval. That's and, and not only that, but you, you increase the size of the study by making it a non-inferiority. And so they must have really been invested in the science. You're right. That, that really is. is yeah, that, that is actually, uh, I, I thought to that. And also the fact that, you know, I was relatively a, a known investigator at that time. <laughs> so <laughs> you probably guys uh, were too young to remember that. But, you know, I was just one of those. Asian investigators, uh, you know, working on lung cancer from Hong Kong, and you know, never really have any major publication in lung cancer. You know, as you, you may or may not know, my first major publication in JCO is actually on hepatoma. No one actually remember that, <laughs> and uh, but all of a sudden, you know, it's a relatively unknown guy to lead a study uh, that is in Asia, and I still remember I told Francis, uh, Professor Francis Shepherd, because uh, she was my mentor when I was in Princess, uh, when I was in Princess Margaret Hospital, she said, uh, I told her that I'm doing the IPAS study, she said, what study? What IPAS? <laughs> she actually, that, at that time, the Western world doesn't know IPAS was ongoing at the 2005. Wow. It uh, just shows that it really, you know, driven by the science and you made really rational arguments and we're all better off for it. We know there's all history now. But we know that IPAS was a very positive study. Jafidnib superior to chemo. The overall PFS there, hazard ratio 0.74. But importantly, as you mentioned, in patients with an EGFR mutation in their tumor, the PFS hazard ratio 0.48. And in those with no EGFR mutation, our PFS hazard ratio 2.85, really showing showing a hazard, showing harm. Uh, this was clear. There were logical results, very impressive. And you know, in my opinion, this ushered in the era of biomarker-driven frontline therapy. Now, today, 
We routinely secure tissue or blood samples for rapid biomarker testing, looking for clues to guide initial therapy. Tony, this was not the case uh, in 2005. We had uh, Dr. Eddie Guerin on for an episode, and he talked about the challenges in getting tissue samples to confirm PDL1. And th- this was, you know, much later. Uh, at the time in 2005, this was a, a new paradigm. Was it hard to get the tissue and to do this biomarker testing? Uh, yes, you're absolutely correct. Uh, because in Asia, we actually use a lot of psychology at that time through infusion fine needle aspirate to, to get sufficient uh, sample for UGFR testing was very difficult. So there's a couple of things we have done. Number one uh, is that when we uh, build up the, uh, the team to do this clinical trial, we really do a lot of uh, education. Uh, so I, I still remember that uh, we have the investigator meeting uh, in China, independently, in Asia, independently, in uh, Japan, uh, independently. So basically, I become a salesman. So I go, I go to all these meetings, try to say, hey, this is important. We got to get a sample and then do a lot of uh, educational uh, for, the, for, for our investigator. Second is actually try to set up a, a central lab. And then because at that time, China uh, can still, uh, right now, they cannot send out the sample. So basically, we have to find the lab that we can actually process it in three separate areas, Japan independently, China independently, and Asia Pacific independently. So you can imagine the resources required uh, to make this trial uh, a success was actually quite tremendous. Thank you, Dr. Mock. And I think something important about that is that that happened back in the early 2000s. There was a lot of things from the early 2000s that, you know, I would like to forget. But, you know, these extra challenges, we didn't have as much technology or connection. So along those lines, IPAS was conducted, as you mentioned, throughout Asia, Hong Kong, China, Japan, Thailand, Singapore, and many more. Were there unique challenges of coordinating this large-scale collaboration? Um, now, one other uh, interesting part is the fact that at that time, the infrastructure for clinical trial in China was actually quite uh, uh, rudimentary. Now, you can imagine that was early 2000. Uh, China had actually just opened uh, as general as a country, uh, not, for, not for too long. And also the medical system at that time was actually a bit basic. So talking about um, uh, GDP, uh, GCP is actually uh, the, the, the basic thing. So we really have to talk about the basic principle of clinical trial and also try to have the resources for them to train the clinical researchers. So those are actually uh, not quite well existing at that time. And so with this uh, IPAS actually helped to enrich uh, the ability to do clinical trial in China and the Asian country by actually engaging them in a multiple center clinical trial with the training and with the support to develop the research nurse. So as a matter of fact, uh, with this uh, IPASS, we actually kickstart the non-cancer research in China. In a way, we actually end up with over 10 high-quality centers from Shanghai, Beijing, and uh, Guangzhou and led by Professor Yilong Wu uh, from China. And after the IPAS, the ability to do trial was subsequently evolved in the CITONG, Chinese Forensic Oncology Group, which was co-founded by uh, Professor Yilong Wu and Professor Lu Shen. Uh, 
So I think IPAS has actually done a lot of good in a way is that they kickstart the clinical trial ability on lung cancer among the multiple investigators in China. Wow. I hadn't realized that. That makes it uh, an even more impactful study. You know, the results of IPAS are clear. They're definitive. Uh, these change the standard of care. At the time the results were presented, how were these results received by the, the global lung cancer community? Did you see practice change overnight? Well, so that reminds me of a fun but yet scary moment. Uh, mm-hmm. That was in uh, Stockholm, September of uh, 2008 in ESMO. So um, I had been going to ESMO, but always only as an audience, uh, being the fact that I was relatively unknown uh, Asian investigator. Uh, but that was the first time that I can speak in the presidential symposium. Uh, you can imagine uh, how nervous that I could get, you know, in getting it ready. So um, gladly, uh, actually turned out to be great. It was really well received. And then the uh, response uh, to the IPAS presentation was very strong. And so as a result, actually, it's quite well received subsequently. And then in 2009, it was published in New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, you know, interesting fact, you know, when I discussed with the drug company where to publish it, they were a little bit shiplish about the data. They said, maybe you can try Lancet or maybe JC or say, no way, we've got to try New England first. And surely I'm glad that we, we make that decision. And so, yeah, overall with that data, because it's a quite clear of what EGFR biomarker, EGFR mutation can do in patient selection. So that actually lead to a chain of reaction is that people actually start investing into the laboratory. I still remember the subsequent uh, days is that we actually have been going around to different country talking about how best to detect EGFR mutation. And so that lead to a, from the different uh, PCR sequencing, lead to the uh, so-called companion diagnostic development, and all this uh, happened subsequently to the presentation of IPAS. This is one of the seminal trials of thoracic oncology. When you were developing the study and doing the trial itself, do you sense the importance of the study? Well, um, Yes, I did, because in, in a way is that you really can see, because I was involved in some of the earlier trial of Jafetilab, you can really see the dramatic response. So at that time, it's just a matter of question, how do I find those patients? I still remember when I tried to work with the pharmaceutical company on the development of the protocol, we basically make an assumption, what would the result be like if we got 20% of the patient with the EGF mutation? what will it be like at 30 or 40? Because we already knew at that time there would be a 70% response rate. You can basically calculate your overall population response rate uh, such that it makes sure that we can achieve the non-inferiority. So at that time, the chemotherapy um, your response rate is about 30%. You know, that, you know, so if I got 70% of response rate to the mutation positive, I must have at least 30 to 40% of her population to be EGFR mutation positive. So that actually turned out to be quite accurate estimation. And so the so result come out. The only thing that surprised us in the beginning was a puzzling in the beginning is that you may remember on the non-nuclear curve is actually crossing, you know, about the crossing of the two curve. At that time, we were not too sure how to interpret that. 
So only when the biomarker data come out later on that we know the crossing was due to the EGFR. So, so that was quite interesting experience, trying to explain the crossing of the curve uh, back in 2008. I mean, Tony, in those early years, I mean, just from a history standpoint, you were so ahead of the curve. You're doing so many things that, you know, are still considered kind of cutting edge today. You were describing MET amplification and its role in bypassing um, the sort of inducing resistance. You were also, uh, you were involved in some of the early efforts in blood testing, right? Oh, that's actually correct. So um, it's an interesting story. So we were able to get this EGFL story out through the iPass, but then testing for EGFL was still difficult. Although we actually were able to send up a very basic Sanger sequencing, you should remember this old way of doing sequencing at that time, but getting the sample was still very difficult. So we start to think that how else we can uh, do the so-called the testing for EGFL. So you probably may know Professor Dennis Lowe who is actually so-called the father of NIPD. With the, she, uh, he used the plasma DNA to look into the fetal DNA from the mother so that they can de uh, detect the abnormality uh, genomically uh, from mother uh, ahead of time for the fetus. So he was very much into the plasma-based DNA. So he and I actually uh, had a um, jaundiced Enfield um, student so that project was actually to use the uh, digital PCR, which was actually at that time, um, something entirely different. They, the digital PCR was actually a big panel of multiple small wells that you put multiple droplets and then sequence it in the same time. So that was a rudimentary type of DDPCR. So we apply to this uh, rudimentary DDPCR to look for the EGFM mutation from the plasma. And so long and behold, that because we're able to collect uh, multiple blood samples from our patient uh, in Hong Kong in the Chinese University, so we were able to demonstrate the sensitivity and specificity of the DP cell in reference to the tissue. I remember that I think we only had about 60 or 70. It's not a big population. And eventually we got the first publication in the CCR, Clinical Cancer Research. So that was one of the first uh, so-called demonstration of the ability to be able to detect the EGFR from the plasma. Yeah, it's so remarkable. Tony, it really just, a, you know, personally, you have such a remarkable history. I I would be remiss not to talk a little bit about your career path before I pass it, if you don't mind. Uh, you mentioned you did your training at Princess Margaret Cancer Center with uh, Professor, uh, Professor Shepard. Uh, we know that after that, you had a very busy community practice in Toronto. Now, in the mid-90s, uh, a lot of people were leaving Hong Kong but you were returning to Hong Kong from Canada. Could you talk a little bit about the decisions, you know, first to go to Canada and then to come back to Hong Kong? All right. Now, so uh, that would take even longer, but I try to <laughs> cut it short. <laughs> so I let's start age when I was age 12. <laughs> that was a long time, that was 50 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> now, I was actually uh, sent my, by my parents to a boarding school, a very nice boarding school in Hong Kong. So I actually become relatively independent when I was young. So it was great life that that place is called St. Stephen College. Right now, I'm actually on the direct board of director of this school. And uh, it was a, having a great time being independent. And so by the time 16, I told my mother to say that I really want to study abroad. And then my mother just said, you're only 16. So you can go to wherever your brother is. And turned out that my brother was in Edmonton, Alberta. I have no hell idea how cold and how far <laughs> Edmonton was. So 
there you go. So I go to where my brother was. I, I have no idea why he chose Edmonton. So I end up the, uh, in Edmonton uh, doing my P-medicine and then medical school and then also the training and uh, in internal medicine. And so after that, I end up in Princess Margaret to complete my oncology training. So to cut the story short is that um, I actually thought of doing academic at that time, but really, but because my son was born uh, at that time. So I really do not want to do too much locum. So as I end up just to go to do a community oncology practice in Scarborough, uh, which was actually uh, enriched with the Chinese population at that time. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I still go to ESCO every two years or so just to catch up with the information. And in 1994, I was actually walking through the poster. I saw a Chinese name that actually come from Chinese University of Hong Kong. So I just go ahead and have a chat with him, just say, oh, we're from Hong Kong together, blah, blah, blah. And there's a poster on XCC. And so we just become friends. So in 1995, when I returned to Hong Kong to visit my family, I dropped by to the Chinese University to visit this uh, professor, uh, Professor Tom, Thomas Leung. And then two days later, uh, his boss offered me a job to go back to Hong Kong. It's not because of my academic credential, because I happen to be a Chinese-speaking trained oncologist who walked through his door while he was looking for an oncologist. That's about it. <laughs> so I then, then on my side, <clears throat> how do I decide to go back to Hong Kong? Actually, it was a difficult because I got a huge practice uh, in Scarborough. I was doing quite well because I was the only Chinese-speaking oncologist around. So I asked one question, um, you know, the, to myself is that what will I be like 10 years later if I stay in Canada? And what will I be like 10 years later if I come back to Hong Kong? So I was 36 and looking at my career path in Scarborough, I can pretty well predict what I will be doing in 10 years. It was a bit of certainty that I will be busy. I will be having a lot of patients. I, I may have a bigger car and a bigger house. But then... I cannot answer the second question, what I would be like in Hong Kong 10 years later. I have no idea what how life would be like. So there's certainty versus uncertainty. So that part, I actually chose uncertainty. I think this is important for a lot of the young doctors as well. The choice between certainty and uncertainty is actually an important one. Now, that's our first, re first reason. The second reason is when 1997 was coming up, that was 1996, and I knew Hong Kong would become part of China. So have been, having left the country for 20 years, I thought this is time that I can do something with China. So basically, the intention to work uh, closely with China was the second reason why I returned to Hong Kong. So since then, actually, after return, I started working with China in 1998 in small clinical trial. But I started working uh, you know, closely with Yilong Wu and, and, uh, and the Shanghai group uh, actually from very early on. So those are the two main reasons why I ended up uh, you know, Chinese University in 1996. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us. There's two important points there for me as a young oncologist and an immigrant. First is that for some unclear reasons, a lot of us immigrants always end in a very cold place when we move <laughs> away from home. That's how that was how I ended in Rochester, Minnesota. Uh, and the second thing is that we leave everything behind, but it's always a part of us that is at home. And many of us, you know, are pulled to go back home. 
So in addition to your countless academic contributions, you also co-founded the Lung Cancer Research Group, the Chinese Thoracic Oncology Research Group, and the Asia Thoracic Oncology Research Group. Can you talk to us about how you started those groups and what is the importance of collaboration in lung cancer research? Right. Thank you so much for that question. I actually, I agree with you. Every All of us who left uh, to U.S. and Canada, I think, you know, we really have a heart uh, back home as well. Now, going back to your question, uh, that was actually uh, back in 1999 uh, or, or 2000 that um, I see that, you know, we were able to do some small trial. At that time, it's only chemotherapy. I can still remember my, my first trial that I was able to do was gemcitabine. So I was sitting in my office one day and uh, Eli Lili uh, had the manager just knock on my door and say, uh, Professor, uh, Dr. Mark, I was not far from professor at that time. We have a new drug called gemcitabine and we also have $20,000 for clinical trial. Do you want to do a trial on this? So $20,000 and the drug. And um, so I actually, I say yes immediately. And I end up actually having a, a 42 patient study on the uh, non-platinum-based combination of gemcitabine and or etoposide for lung cancer. It was actually published. Don't laugh at it. I mean, it was an interesting <laughs> trial for me at that time. But then uh, obviously it is actually uh, not impactful at all. But that got me started uh, about the clinical trial. And as well as the Eli Lili want me to just go around Asia to talk about gemcitabine. So with that experience, I end up meeting a lot of the investigator from Asia, James Yang from Taiwan, Michael Boyer from Australia, and then from Yilongwu from China. And so, you know, that actually built up the relationship among different investigators who was interested in lung cancer. So at that time, I just thought that, hey, you know, it was so difficult to do single um, a single center study. Why don't we unite it together? So Michael Boyer and I actually used a, a small funding from Eli Lidi at that time, and we actually co-founded the Lung Cancer Research Group. At that time, we had about nine centers across from Korea, uh, Japan, uh, Australia, Singapore, Hong Kong, and China. So that is how we have the first group. And then uh, we end up doing a multi-center, small randomized phase two study on cytotoxic drugs. So that's how we started this group. And actually this experience is important, although, you know, actually not tremendous publication come of it, but it gives us a foundation to work together as a multi-center group. And that actually is the foundation that lead to the success of IPAS study. Without this connection, I think it would be very challenging to move on to IPAS study when the opportunity comes. So in a way, is that we kind of accidentally prepared ourselves ahead so that when opportunity arrived, we were able to take on the opportunity. And I'm quite sure for a lot of the young investigator, that's exactly what you need to do. Get yourself well prepared, and then wait for your opportunity. Wow. Um, Tony, we, we could literally talk to you for hours, uh, but but we are, <laughs> we're out of time for this episode. Um, hopefully another episode in the future, but you know, Narjus and I wanted to thank you so much for, for joining us on Lung Cancer Considered today. 
Well, thank you, uh, Steve. Uh, thank you, Dr. And because uh, basically, I think that uh, uh, I'm getting old now, and uh, certainly that hopefully my 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 experience from uh, this past twenty year uh, can help to encourage the young investigator to move on the exciting development in lung cancer in the future. Thank you, Tony. That's certain. I'm fully motivated. I think I'm going to work even during vacation time. So thank you for all the work you have done and you are doing in the field. And thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official ISLC podcast. You can listen to other episodes in SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and our website, islc.org, on their newsroom. We hope you will tune in regularly and give us a listen. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 